Welcome to The Weather Pod, a podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient, and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. In this episode of The Weather Pod, it's our great pleasure to welcome into the studio Florence Rabier, the Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, or ECMWF. As many listeners will know, ECMWF is an independent intergovernmental organisation supported by 34 countries, working closely with their national meteorological services. Over its 45-year history, it has established itself as the world leader in skillful global numerical weather predictions. It now employs around 360 staff from more than 30 countries. Florence has been Director General of ECMWF since January 2016, following two years leading the Centre's forecast department. An internationally recognised expert in numerical weather prediction, her career so far has taken her back and forth between the French National Weather Service, Meteo France, and ECMWF. Florence, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the WeatherPod. And for me, Florence, uh, welcome to the WeatherPod. The pleasure is mine. Thank you very much for having me. Florence, uh, you're one of the few women in the meteorology sector, a sector which is largely dominated by men, who has burst through the glass ceiling and risen to the top of one of the world's most respected organisations. Can you tell us a little about the challenges you face getting there and the lessons you would pass on to anyone seeking to follow in your footsteps? It is sometimes a challenge to be the only woman among many men, and it feels really like the odd one out, typically. But I think what I would try to to do all my life is to try to develop the confidence from a young age that you can achieve just as much as men in the fields that are, of course, of interest to you. And I think it probably helped me that I had two brothers and typically I managed as well and even better at school in math and physics, which were some of the topics I liked and which actually were useful for my career afterwards. So then I guess I was trying not to be too impressed by boys in my age group then who were acting like they were more clever. You know, you always have these people at school and men are quite good at being confident and it starts from a young age. So I remember getting out of, I don't know, math exams or something and there were always these blokes saying, oh yeah, it was easy, you know, I smashed it, etc. And I was always self-critical and thinking, oh my God, I didn't do all the questions and maybe this was wrong and 
And in the end, you know, when you notice that actually you get just as good marks as them, then, you know, you try to not be impressed by boys and men. So then, you know, throughout the career, I think it's very important that you ignore those who maybe might be putting you down or making misogynistic comments. So, um, you know, I had them all my life. So I, well, I wouldn't say they were very frequent, but some of them did get to me sometimes. But then at some point you have to realize that there's no point in changing people who think like that. And if you, even if you comment or fight it, you know, they are just going to think you're, you're annoying. So the, the expression, you know, to, to use maybe is to rise above it. And I quite like Michelle Obama, for instance, you know, she has this famous expression who says, when they go low, we go high about handling bullies and, and all that. So I think that's taking a bit of a, you know, step backwards and thinking, well, okay, that's okay. I just look at it from the outside and trying not to get too worked up by it. And then I must say, you know, although I, I did say, yeah, that I had some comments like that, which were a bit misogynistic throughout my career, I've, I've, I really have the, had the luck to find a lot of support. And I think so that's where you should concentrate, actually, as a woman, to find the support where you can get it. And I was lucky enough to have some very good support from very influential people. And I don't want to praise here openly Alan Thorpe, for instance, but it is true that the two directors of ACMWF, who were directors when I was a young scientist and then later on as a director, both Dave Burridge and Alan Thorpe are, are quite feminist in their own ways. So, you know, I never felt that they treated me differently because I was a woman and they were encouraging me like they would have encouraged anyone. So I think it's it's quite good to find these people. And in Meteo France, I found some as well. So find the support where, you know, from your peers. I had some friends who recommended to me to apply some jobs where maybe I thought, oh, really? Do you think I would be good enough? And just hearing them say, well, yeah, why don't you apply? That can give you all the confidence, the extra boost of confidence, I guess, you need. And then I think at this point, you know, my role is more to help supporting others. And I try to encourage young women I see who are very promising. And also um, acting a bit as a role model by, by, you know, showing up at events and saying, well, you know, a woman can make it to the top, okay, in a small organization, but in a, in a, you know, sort of the top in my context. So why, why don't you make a try for it. So that would be the sort of advice I, I would get. And these are the challenges then that I have met in my career. So Florence, you, you mentioned, of course, ECMWF, and you said it's small organization, but of course, it's recognized worldwide as producing the most skillful global numerical weather predictions and related to that uh, as a very innovative research environment. To what do you attribute this ongoing success? Well, I think it, there are many factors, of course. But I think it, it's, it comes really from the beginning, from how we were created. You know, we were created in, in 75, so a long time ago. But from the beginning, we were created to be collaborative and to gather resources and talent from a large number of countries. So being open to collaboration was very important from the beginning of ECMWF. And actually, although I say we were intended to gather talent from Europe, uh, actually, from the beginning, we worked a lot with the US as well. And we started actually by working on a version of the GFDL model in the States to sort of build 
from our NWP experience. So the collaboration and gathering of resources and of talent is, of course, I think the main, you know, the main strong point of ECMWA. Then mm -hmm. what also helps is that we have, we are quite focused on a clearly defined mission. So we've expressed that quite clearly in our new strategy, which we've just published uh, for 2021-2030. So really our mission is to deliver global medium-range numerical weather predictions and monitoring of the Earth system to our member states. And our vision is really to produce this at the cutting edge of science and to produce world-leading weather predictions. And for the motivation is also to do it for a safe and prosperous society. So all this, I think, really drives our motivation, drives the motivation of our staff. And our staff are highly talented because we are a highly selective environment. You know, we, we of course, always advertise our positions and we try to really get the best of the best if possible. So people come, they've gone through a, you know, a lot of scrutiny and competition. They are in this highly selective environment and they have a clear mission, which is very motivating. So I think this helps. Then I could continue. And I think maybe something I would say as well is that we are a closely knit organization. You know, we are working very nicely together, all towards the same goal, of course. So there's a huge interaction. And I think the size, the fact that we're not too big probably helps there. But there's a huge interaction across all parts of ECMWF between the modelers and the HPC scientists, for instance, and between the weather scientists developing models and the scientists analyzing the models and providing feedback on model performance. So having this close collaboration really, really helps. And we've established all these ways of interacting, quite formally sometimes, but also just around a coffee or, or meal. But every day we have the analyst uh, doing the analysis of the weather forecast and not just the prediction because we're not really a prediction center, but looking at our forecast and saying, where did we go right? Where did we go wrong? Look at what's going to happen. Is it realistic to have such a high pressure or low pressure or whatever? And then following up through the week. Then at the end of the week, we have this weekly discussion, which of course now we do interactively, but you know, it gathers more than 100 staff from ECMWF, from scientists to analysts, really, and to other people. And it culminates every quarter by this quarterly evaluation meeting where we really go together, we examine the forecast performance, the different issues we discuss all together. So this, this sense of building something together and trying to eliminate silos as soon as they happen, you know, being quite clear that we shouldn't work in silos, but all together really, really helps. So I think these are probably what I would find the most the most important in, um, you know, the fact that we are quite successful, as well, of course, as a lot of collaboration and partnerships. So, you, you know, on the partnerships, I mean, given that you, your members, you have 34 countries as members, I mean, forging public-private, uh, uh, sorry, public sector partnerships with so many organizations must present challenges. What would you say was the most important factor in establishing and maintaining those partnerships? Well, I think, you know, it's much beyond our member states and the Met Services and our member states. And I think what you have to do is really to keep an open mind 
And although we are quite proud of what we are achieving, that's, you know, in our DNA sort of thing. But you have to acknowledge that there's a huge experience and expertise in other sectors, in other companies, in other organizations, in other med services. So you have to engage with an open mind. And I think it's, it's for instance, there are very, very successful partnerships which we have beyond, you know, our committees where we engage, as I said, with med services. But I think we have developed a very good relationship with our users as well. And uh, so in the med services, the, the, the forecasters in, in um, med services are, of course, our main users. But we also engage with all sorts of users, including private companies and insurance companies, etc. So we have these um, points of contact with them. In particular, we have a huge uh, workshop, a huge event, usually in June, which is using ECMWF forecasts, where we engage with a lot of different actors. And then, of course, we have partnerships with satellite agencies. You know, UMEDSAT is sort of our, of our sister organization in Europe, but we have more and more a strong partnership with um, with ESA as well, but also through other institutional partners. But all these are, you know, the big partnerships, you know, member states, med services, space agencies. But I think very often these partnerships, you know, they go through personal contacts as well, and that's how they develop sometimes. And what we've established a few years ago is these fellows. So these are high highly respected scientists, professors in various universities, organizations with whom you we engage to develop a partnership and they engage with their students, for instance. And sometimes they also bring um, some of their students work with us uh, eventually because they started being engaged with us in some of the projects. So I could quote, for instance, Tim Palmer in Oxford, uh, having students always working in selected topics with us and then fitting it in new scientists working for us. We're working closely with the University of Reading, in particular for flood forecasting through Hannah Cloak. And sometimes it's through this personal relationship that then you develop, um, you know, relationships with the whole organization. But what we've done recently, maybe a bit differently from what we did in the past, is to go beyond our meteorological circles and to work more closely hand in hand with computing scientists and vendors, you know, in the HPC world, for instance. And the latest um, supercomputer, for instance, we acquired is a, a supercomputer with uh, made by Atos. And we've created together this center of excellence, which is something absolutely new, where we put our resources together with their resources to work together for tackling the new technological challenges in the field of meteorological and climate forecasting. So, you know, we have typically a couple of projects on how to adapt our code to the new technologies, the one, um, you know, where the supercomputers will not just have simple CPU processors, but also GPU processors and even beyond, you know, and also how to include AI, artificial intelligence in all our activities. We also had a project which was called NextGenIO with Fujitsu and Intel about using cutting edge technology for fast access to memory in supercomputing. So I think this is keeping an open mind of who we engage with beyond our classical partners and 
continuing to um, have these strong relationships through sometimes, you know, which start just with one scientist of one person, but that can evolve for the benefit of different organizations. I think this is the key, keep, keeping an open mind and realizing that there's a lot of expertise out there and that we will work better in collaboration. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Florence, I'd like to just pick up on on one aspect of cooperation. You've been talking a a lot about partnerships there and and how important they are. Of course, amongst ECMWF's member states, there are several uh, which have the largest and most successful national meteorological services in the world. And indeed, three of them develop and operate their own global numerical weather prediction models independent of ECMWF. I wonder how you would characterize the relationship between ECMWF's own operational numerical weather prediction system and these modeling systems of its member states? Yes, so we have, you know, we have 34 member incorporating states and even within our member states, we have some very, very small ones. But in a way, diversity is a strength. So you're talking about the the large ones, but I I will start with the other ones, which is another challenge in a way but obviously nwp numerical weather prediction it's a bit of a niche activity you know it's not something you learn uh, at school at university sometimes and we really rely on the expertise from all our med services for a wide part of our activities so i think from the smaller ones in a way we can learn um because they are more direct users of our forecast we we can learn how our global model will be used to either be downscaled through, um, you know, limited area modeling, fine scale modeling for some, or just simply post-processed by others. So because they, they are more direct users of our forecast, I think it really helps us to engage with them because then we know a bit more what to develop, what is useful. But having large member states with a lot of expertise and in a way, yes, you know, you could say they are duplicating what you're doing. Well, they're working on the same sort of things. So, but having people working on similar issues in the large med services, I think is actually very beneficial for us. And because we can exchange, of course. And there's also a way, you know, when we say they are different systems, I think, yeah, they are different, but as you know, in science, we, we all build from the experience of others, from what worked in other systems, what didn't work, which is also very important because you don't make the same mistakes. And I think there are ways in which we contribute to these other systems, um, to these other modeling activities, even if we don't share the same code. For instance, um, if you think of using satellite data, the idea of doing variational techniques, 1D var, you know, doing a retrieval on the vertical, came from the Met Office, was imported by somebody from the Met Office, John Eyre at ECMWF, and then we developed that. So we learned from them, and then we implemented 1D var at the center. Then we went a bit further. We developed new method, three-dimensional variational assimilation, four-dimensional variational data simulation, which then they learned a lot from us, and then they implemented their own version of something that we had started to develop in our center. So there's this going and, you know, back and forth of ideas and implementations that happens. So this was in particular 
with the Met Office, for instance. With uh, DWD, with the Germans, we work a lot on physical parametrization, and they've actually adopted quite a lot of our physical parametrization schemes, including our convection scheme, which, as you know, is a very important part of, uh, of, a, of a numerical model. So we all benefit then, you know, we, we exchange ideas and even code sometimes. With the third one, with France, it's actually a bit different because there we have an even closer relationship because we share most of the code. So there it's a bit more obvious that actually these are joint developments. So this is, it's not exactly a clone because we have some different parts of the code, but we also have, we, we share the whole dynamics and we share a lot of the processing of the observations, not all the physics, but we are converging there as well. So there is actually much more a collaboration, exchange of code and of expertise that what it could look like from the outside. And what's great as well with some of these partnerships is that it doesn't stop at global models. It actually goes through limited area models, which are run in, um, in Europe. So for instance, when we share ideas with the, with the Met Office, you know, they have their seamless um, weather um, system earth system modeling so they use the same sort of concept and code for their limited area model the same from uh, for meteo france and actually the um, the limited area model they developed there is developed in collaboration with 26 different countries in europe and beyond for instance there is turkey there is also north africa so actually part of the code we use and we share with meteo france who is running a global model is also used in plenty of limited area models, which are actually converging now to being in the same frame, framework and running a bit more in collaboration. So I think it's, it's really, um, you know, it, it's not just disjoint and even you could think competitors from the outside. We're really sharing a lot of ideas, a lot of expertise and a lot of the code, which can then benefit basically all our activities in Europe. So I, I suppose what you're saying, Florence, if I can paraphrase it, um, it is that really at the at the collaborative end of of um, research and development on on modelling, it's really quite important and useful to have um, people, scientists who are working on on different model formulations and sharing intimately their their experience and sharing best practice across that, and that's a more effective. Uh, regime of partnership than say just just one model with with a number of people working on it solely yes absolutely and actually on the other end i think also for users it's it can be quite an advantage to have several models because you know no model is perfect and you know they are usually clever enough uh, to use the different models which come of course with their ensemble forecast so it's a huge amount of information but you know, they manage to actually combine them cleverly through post-processing calibration for added benefits. So I think the end users also might gain from having these different models developed in parallel, but in close collaboration. Florence, you've, you've talked about the public-private sector perhaps using uh, UCMWF prediction data as the basis of their own weather forecast products. And a notable example, that's the National Weather Services of many developing countries. And I'd like to ask you about ECMWF and World Bank client countries in particular. You're, you mentioned that you've just published your new strategy for the next decade. 
And this is going to offer some game-changing advances. And for example, I guess uh, higher resolution ensemble prediction, exploiting AI, machine learning, cloud services, to name a few. These are so significant that it's going to be important for many developing countries to adjust their own strategies to adapt to the expected advances that will be made at ECMWF. Investment priorities will necessarily have to change. How can development partners work with you and their clients so that they can realize these benefits? Yeah, I think this is a, a really good question and and we would really welcome working even closer with with these uh, partners, development partners to bring uh, more efficiency in the whole world system. And actually ECMWF has worked with the World Meteorological Organization, the World Bank and other international agencies to support the provision of services for, of course, always the protection of lives and properties in developing countries for years. And I think this collaboration, for instance, has allowed ECMWF to provide some national met and hydrological services with access to EC charts. So this is a service that allows you to visualize ECMWF products in a sort of customized graphical environment. So, of course, it, it's not that elaborate as, as real data, but this can be really useful for countries that do not have their own infrastructure able to ingest and process large amounts of data in numerical form. Also, in collaboration with developing agencies, ECMWF has provided full access to numerical and graphical data. But to make really the best use of these products, training is essential. And this activity has also been occasionally funded by developing agencies. So I think with our new strategy, as you said, we aim at expanding the availability of online training materials. So that could facilitate remote learning. But another important focus of the new strategy is how to get around the issues related to the transfer and the processing of large volumes of data. And at the moment, we are developing a cloud computing infrastructure in collaboration with UMETSAT, which is called the European Weather Cloud. And this will allow users to process data and run services directly from the cloud using its computing power and environment geared for meteorological and machine learning application. So access in principle will be open to national med services of WMO. And this could be of particular interest to countries with little investment opportunities for their own high performance computing infrastructure. And this is a new area where collaborations with age agencies might be particularly fruitful. Also, you could you could wonder, you know, is it really beneficial to develop your own infrastructure if you're a small developing country? Is it really beneficial to develop your own infra HPC infrastructure, your own models or run your own models when actually you could use much more efficiently uh, the models created by others and then having your own tools, in particular through downscaling AI uh, opportunities and that actually could maybe give just as good a forecast for your own application. So I, I would recommend thinking about that rather than duplicating at the local scale a lot of computations. And so the support provided by ECMWF, however, ha for the time being has been so far based on individual projects and initiatives, which I think have been very relevant, but they are, are time limited. 
and they don't allow for wider coordination. This is why we would appreciate, you know, building something maybe a bit stronger, a bit more, a bit less time, time limited. And in particular, we're looking with great interest to the SOF initiative. So SOF, uh, I'm sure you've talked about it in a previous podcast, but I, I just would say it for, for other listeners maybe, is the Systematic Observations Financing Facility. And it's shaped by WMO. But through this facility, maybe ECMWF support could be framed within a much larger program for the strengthening of the meteorological environmental observing network. So this would not only benefit targeted countries that we can do with ad hoc uh, development, but the whole meteorological community worldwide. And ECMWF itself as as a strong and more resilient, of course, observing network will improve the delivery of high quality forecasts. So within this framework of SOF or other such initiatives, I think ECMWF could in principle provide real-time products, training, and access to computing resources via the European Weather Cloud, for instance, that would allow uh, different countries to benefit from what we have created without necessarily needing to reproduce at the local scale what they can achieve by benefiting from what has been produced um, in particular in Europe. Florence, do you think that there is um, there would be benefit in um, other parts of the world having kind of regional cooperation among themselves? And I'm thinking particularly about South Asia at the moment. And in South Asia, there's discussion about uh, pooling resources. I mean, there's a lot of investment going on at the moment, f- uh, particularly from the World Bank in many countries. So that nine countries, that's eight South Asian countries plus Myanmar. And there is interest in, and they already share resources through uh, cooperation with India, but there is some interest in, for example, having access to cloud computing. Do you think there there would be benefit in adapting the strategy that's very much nascent at the moment uh, in the in the region, but adapting it to and following uh, the activities that are going on in ECMWF? Yes, absolutely. I think... Um, the regional level can really help a lot as well. And we have a cooperation agreement with RIMES uh, where we also, you know, provide some resources when they can tailor them to their um, own members. So the regional level is quite important because people can can maybe relate better to, to their neighbours and the whole region rather than always uh, link to um, to other developments. So I would say I would I would encourage that and really... These cloud computing initiatives now and the technology could really help uh, in that respect so that everybody can can use shared resources to develop their own tweaking or application or AI, you know, application from the same sort of pool of, of big resources, but they can tailor that to their own country and their own application with, with the, their own expertise so um, I think there is a lot of uh, strength in pooling resources at regional levels as well. But I think through WMO as well, there are some initiatives like that which which um, which you build on. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I'd like to move us, Florence, on to a, a slightly different topic, uh, obviously related. Um, 
Over recent years, ECMWF has extended its relationship with the European Union via the Copernicus program, uh, in which it takes a leading role uh, in the provision of atmospheric monitoring and climate change services and obviously expands your activities beyond global numerical weather prediction. And now recently, the EU has announced a major new program called Destination Earth to create what they refer to as a digital twin of the Earth. I wondered in the context of these programs, could you tell us how you see ECMDRF's relationship with the EU developing? Sure. And so obviously, you know, as you know, we are an intergovernmental organization. We are not an EU organization, but it is fair to say that our relationship with the EU has increased and we are now a sort of privileged partner of the EU. We've we've always had a lot of successful EU projects in the area of research. And because we are more than ever embracing a sort of seamless Earth system approach with integration of atmospheric composition, flood fires embedded in our system, working at all time scales, uh, from going back to the to, to the past for climate monitoring to predicting in the future. I think this is why we have engaged in this sort of broadening of our activities, thanks to the EU typically. So, you know, this is really expanding beyond simple NWP forecast for medium range weather forecasting three to 10 days, but it's actually really embracing this earth system approach. And this is why we, we now have this very close collaboration with the EU in the field of Copernicus. So since a few years back, so it was when New Allen were director general, so I'm sure you perfectly remember it was in 2014. That's when we started acting as operator of two Copernicus services. So of course, Copernicus is Europe's eyes on earth. It's a large fleet of Sentinel satellites. So it, it's in the space program, but there's also these services that allow to use the observation and to from this data to actually provide information to, to users. So we are running two services, the climate change service and the atmosphere monitoring service, but we're also very engaged in the emergency service because we are running all the computations from for the flood and fire activities. So I think this has really changed the way we function as now we have been allocated a budget and some objectives by the EU. Uh, these have been agreed by our member states in, in our council through our proper governance. But we were allocated this budget to achieve something for the EU, not just for ECMWF and its member states. And we had to both deliver ourselves some output, which we are used to doing, such as reanalysis or global atmospheric composition forecast. But also what changed a lot is that we had to contract the large majority of these activities to other organizations. So this was com a completely changed paradigm shift for ECMWF. And so we had to build this whole procurement and contracting activity, which it was challenging at first, but I think it was a huge success. And in particular, you know, we have diversified our, the people with whom we interact because we are in particular including a lot of private companies to whom we are contracting. I think it has been a huge success. And now, you know, we can see that climate monitoring in particular 
that we provide through our reanalysis is the global references quoted is in, in all the newspapers in Europe and uh, also in other parts of the world. And I was quite happy that it was, you know, sometimes it's quoted as the reference when it used to be NASA, NOAA, and maybe the Met Office, you know, that were the real references. But now, you know, this reanalysis is quoted as a reference to provide the state of the climate. So this is a huge success. And also all the applications that have been created in Europe and elsewhere, actually, but um, on our atmospheric composition service, you know, from UV for tourists, you know, so saying when you have to put the sun cream, you know, the sun cream on to actually when you shouldn't go out running because there's too much pollution if you're asthmatic. All these applications that have been built from Copernicus services is just, you know, a great sense of pride and a great success for Europe. But so this is what we've achieved so far. But I think we could go even further and in particular in the context of this new Destination Earth initiative. So I might go a bit further in Destination Earth because, you know, it's not, not established yet, so it's not well known. But it's one of the initiatives that has been identified um, in the communication of European strategy for data, building on the Green Deal data space. So, of course, the European Green Deal goes hand in hand with the digital transition. And I think this culminates in this initiative, which will combine investments and activities in AI, supercomputing, cloud computing, high connectivity network, high speed connectivity networks with other observations. And while bringing together, of course, European scientific and very importantly, industrial excellence. So the goal of Destination Earth, or sometimes we call it Destiny, so E with a capital E at the end for Earth, so Destiny wants to develop a very high-precision digital model of the Earth, what we call a digital twin, to anticipate, monitor, and better understand and react in time to the climate change challenges which are ahead of us, so climate adaptation typically. So what we call a digital twin of the Earth, it's not a new concept. I mean, the digital twin uh, is used, terminology is used for in other areas, but basically, what it is, it's a sort of living digital replica of the Earth that will give us knowledge about, about our, to protect our planet's future. Florence, how does it differ from what we're used to in terms of a global numerical weather prediction model or, or even an Earth system model? Is it, does it, is it taking us further than that? It's taking us further than that. So, of course, we already know, you know, that we have the real physical world and then we have the models and we combine both. Both. But I think there are several um, important aspects. First, there will be a step change in the accuracy and the resolution of this system. So what we're planning to do is actually this digital twin of the Earth would be run at something like one to two kilometers globally. So that's the sort of resolution we are thinking about for the typically the few days time scale. So first, there's a really a step change in the resolution, in the accuracy. Then there is uh, the interactive aspect and the fact that people can play with the model, can play with the simulation. There will be this um, cloud platform, uh, a whole platform encompassing these digital twins, a lot of data, where people will be able to 
incorporate uh, real-time data about, you know, atmospheric pol pollution, etc., but also other data coming from society, such as energy use, traffic patterns, human movements, for instance. So it will encompass other sorts of observations from than the ones we classically use, the classically used in Earth observations. And finally, it will make full use of AI and sophisticated data analytics to allow the users to interact with the platform and the data from the digital twin. So what you can imagine is, you know, we are running this thing, but people can add their data and they can also play um, together with these extreme scale modeling simulation and prediction capabilities. So they can customize the platform, integrate their own data and develop their own applications. So that's, that's the dream, if you wish, to have this platform that puts together all these resources, data, but also simulations, but also allow people to really interact, not just visualize the data, but interact with the data, put their own data, replay some simulations. And that would be the sort of digital trim the digital twin vision we would have in the future. So what, you know, it's it's really a real planetary scale information system that that also allow not just, it's not just a prediction of how weather and climate will evolve, but also it tells you how local human action might manifest themselves globally. So what we say is that users will be able to create the what-if scenarios and replay simulations based on various hypothesis. So the way it's planned to be implemented is that the European Commission will lead this initiative, but um, will coordinate implementation efforts between the three implementing entities. So ECMWF is one, together with ESA and NUMETSAT, but of course in collaboration with member states and many actors in the research and industry. You know, I said we will continue to develop Copernicus and the obvious question is as well, what, what does it change as well? What does it bring to Copernicus? Well, I think the way we see it is that destiny will build on Copernicus and European Earth observation, which is an area where, you know, Europe is really a global leader, but it will add the cutting edge supercomputing dimension. It will use some of the most advanced high performance computers in Europe, in particular the Euro HPC platforms, and it will allow full interactivity of the users with the digital twins of the Earth. So in that sense, I think it will provide cutting-edge developments that will feed into the future activities of Copernicus and weather services, while, of course, these will continue to deliver operational climate services to the users. So in that sense, it is a bit complementary to what we've talked about before. It, it's all very ambitious, and this is, you know, the long-term vision. But that we are quite excited about about this initiative because for us, it will allow us to project ourselves in developing our new modeling system in the new supercomputers of the future, giving us the resources to do that in particular, and to try on these pre-exascale machines, uh, the EuroHPC supercomputers, how, what do we have to do to in the future run operationally on these machines? So this will be a sort of precursor runs on these, super on these supercomputers of the future that will allow us to see where the bottlenecks are and what we need to change in our system to adapt to the future. So Florence, sadly I have to 
bring our discussion to a conclusion. What basically you, you, you've outlined a very impressive strategy and huge goals for yourselves. What do you see are the major challenges you face in the coming years? So there are um, many challenges, of course. So I, I've just talked about supercomputing and where will the technology take us, you know. So our code is, is still quite traditional. We can only run on CPU, but we have to continue to work with the vendors, with the large supercomputers to adapt to the supercomputers of the future. GPUs now, quantum in the future, who knows? So this is a big challenge because we have to integrate computing scientists and weather scientists, you know, together, that they, they work closely together to really adapt the code seamlessly to be future-proof, if you wish. Then one of the challenges, talking about technology again, is really we believe in the future of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And this is, of course, an area where we are not specialists. So we have also to really build the expertise inside and benefit from the expertise outside to embrace these new ideas, not necessarily to replace the way we, we do it, because we still believe in physical understanding and weather modeling, but we think AI and machine learning have their place through the whole NWP workflow, from data processing to data simulation, forecasting, and post-processing. So being more at ease with embracing the technological developments. I think this will be one of the challenges. Then, of course, there are challenges in um, making the most of the huge amount of data that come in, in particular Internet of Things data. You know, I've talked about uh, data gathered, crowdsourced data. I think we have to also embrace these uh, data which are not so conventional. So we might not be so comfortable with because they are not quality controlled. We have to develop all this. So we have to, to develop this as well. Huge amount of data to come in and we have to help the users use all the data that we will produce. So these are, you know, prediction data, forecast data. We have to help them really compress the data, bring computing close to the data so that they are, can actually access the data easily through cloud technologies. So this will be also a challenge. And uh, a sort of more pragmatic challenge as well is um, we are now going to be located over three sites. Uh, so the headquarters and most of our activities uh, stay in Reading in the UK, but we'll have the... Um, uh, data center in Bologna, it's finishing to be built. And we'll also have some EU activities uh, in Bonn in Germany. So when I say that one of our strengths was working closely together as a really close family, we'll have to learn to work in a bit more, um, you know, extended way geographically. And I think in a way the COVID experience has learned, well, has taught us, we have learned a bit how to work in a bit more spread way uh, and the technology definitely uh, helped but we, we will have to make the most of being in the distributed environment and building then other partnerships continuing to be partnerships throughout these different sites without uh, breaking the close cohesion of ECMWF so this is just an organizational uh, challenge if you wish but I think it will keep us busy for the next few years 
Lawrence, I'd like to, to say thank you very much for coming along today. Um, it's been a very exciting listening to you, and, and I think the, the future looks very, very interesting for all of us. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, Florence, from me, thank you so much for being our guest today and presenting such an optimistic and exciting vision of the future. Well, thank you both for having me. It has really been a pleasure. And as you could see, I'm quite excited about the future. There are some challenges, but I think it's just fantastic, This uh, the future in front of us in the meteorological community. So, yeah, thank you. And the future is bright. We'll just have to make it happen. <laughs> well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Alan and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org.